Hi, this is County Executive Barry Glassman, and you're listening to Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Today on the podcast, we are going to take you through the final meeting of the Kerwin Commission's funding work group, and we'll tell you, do the numbers tell the whole story here? But first, spoiler, Michael... Spoiler, yeah, they don't. They, they don't. <laughs> first, Michael, though, today is a very sad day in Maryland, as we woke up this morning to learn that Congressman Elijah Cummings had passed away. He's been a congressman since 1996, representing parts of Baltimore City, Baltimore County, and Howard County. Before that, he served in the General Assembly for 14 years and first African-American to be Speaker Pro Tem. So just a, a really sad day. He was a champion not only for Baltimore, but for Maryland as well. Well, Baltimore in particular lost a hero, and you can tell from the wave of both the standard, you know, the standard version of, hey, we're, you know, condolences to the family, but also sort of to the whole community who lost a real champion. I mean, I have a, a, a little story. This is hardly a blip in his magnificent career, but it was, it was memorable to me. Um, back around 2000, I, I was working at Mako in 2000, believe it or not. Right. But one of our conferences, Congressman Cummings came to speak on talking about a somewhat controversial bill that had gone through Congress. Uh, we called it the RELUPA. It's, it's Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. But the controversial part was this was trying to it was federal legislation drawing lines about what local governments can do by way of planning and zoning affecting religious institutions. There were a lot of issues at the time with so-called mega churches showing up and, and wanting to be exempted from planning and zoning and so forth. And anyway, the congressman shows up. He's voted for this bill. Um, he's someone who had been prominent in the faith community, uh, even into his, you know, his time as a politician. Right. He speaks like a preacher. He's, he isn't, he wasn't a speaker. He was an orator. Absolutely. Right? Right? Absolutely. So he came to sit on this panel and the audience are all people who do local land use, right? This is the Mako conference. These are people who are saying we are the ones who want to guide how the community looks. He threaded that needle so beautifully in talking about this is what America stands for. We can't have a circumstance where the power to zone becomes the power to destroy, sort of like, you know, the power to tax can be wow, the power to right, destroy. Right. And I don't know. I think most people left that room saying, you know what, this was probably a pretty fair deal. Which is, that, that is obviously not do, right? how you would expect that to go. <laughs> right. So, I mean, he was a gifted politician in a lot of ways, but to come into a room where people started out probably thinking the other direction and turn a lot of heads and a lot of minds, really, really impressive. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. And we've certainly heard a lot of anecdotes, as you said today. It's not just your yeah, traditional thoughts kind of and prayers. Right? It's that kind of day, but certainly a big loss. And we wish his family well. All right, Michael, let's get into 
the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education's Funding Formula Workgroup. If you don't know what we're talking about... Welcome to the I, podcast. Yeah. If this is a new topic to you, welcome. Yes. And <laughs> Michael, we last week we discussed their penultimate meeting, and last week was their final meeting where we got an idea of exactly what this workgroup would recommend to the full Kerwin Commission, who will now debate their proposal, and then that presumably turns into legislation. So let's first, Michael, sort of walk through this last meeting. Yeah, yeah. And, and the first thing that was interesting here, and we've talked about this for a while, was we've seen these numbers sort of be morphed into a true phase-in, right? We, we, before, everything was front-loaded. So while it was a 10-year phase-in, all the costs were really front-loaded within the first four years. Right. So uh, no surprise to us and no surprise to listeners of this podcast because we basically called this shot back in April when the blueprint bill passed, you know, the, the sort of short-term funding bill passed right. this last legislative session. It included a clause directing the commission basically to come back with a more evenly spaced out funding plan. We felt like that one sentence in that whatever it was, 25-page bill was really important. We told you to circle that sentence, and here we are. We now see I mean, the, the details are a little complicated. We've we've posted a lot of stuff on the Conduit Street blog this week. And we'll link that to the, the, the podcast yeah, page. So, as so well. that'll be in in the show notes. But as a as a practical matter, um, some programs need to be phased in over a longer period of time than the commission had in mind. There's some things that are gonna have to wait a few years before they get up and running. That's gonna change the numbers and the distributions and so forth, but the, the end game after 10 years remains a big, pretty aggressive program. Their, their new bottom line is about two point, that's about 2.8 billion, a little short of 277. Right. 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 So in, in state costs, in FY30 dollars, the, the state cost ends up being about 2.8 billion. Uh, we get there a little more gradually and particularly the first three years look reasonably close to being in keeping with the funding plan that I just passed last year. Right. So this doesn't rock the boat really dramatically right off the bat where the draft plan from the full commission ramped up very rapidly to like 3.2 out of their $3.8 billion in total costs right. in the third or fourth year. Right. So, so this is a change from where we were in January but by April, we saw this change coming. Right. Not a big surprise. If you've been listening to the podcast or reading the Conduit Street blog, you saw this coming too. And Michael, let's get into these, these components here that will be phased in. You mentioned some of the items don't start right away. And this might be an area where the Kerwin Commission is going to have some say in terms of what this funding work group has recommended. Yeah. I mean, since we're trying to do a little bit of description and a little bit of guessing game, this seems like an area where the full commission, they're going to convene in a couple of weeks and receive all these recommendations. I'm sure they'll spend some time just sort of hearing how it works right. and what things start in what years and get phased over what stretch of time. And of course, you do have many of the members who are on the funding work group are also on the Kerwin Commission. So they'll be able to explain sort sure. of how the mechanics work and how they came up to, to this right. report. But you do have have another of interest groups who are represented on the full commission who really weren't at the table for the number crunching side. Right. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the commission 
ends up saying, you know what, in our final report, we're going to disagree with this piece. We don't want that piece to wait that long. We'd rather it happened earlier and maybe we do some trading and, and, and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some things along those lines. I don't think the bottom line final number is really up for negotiation. I mean, maybe if there's better data, we'll right, refine it. Right. But I don't, I don't think they're going to add or subtract a half billion dollars from that total. But is it possible that year two or year six looks a little different after the commission gets through with it, I wouldn't be too surprised there. Okay. So let's talk about the county side here. That's what we're focused on. We've been focusing on that, right? That's our gig. So So first of all, concentration of poverty. We talked about this last week. And Michael, what we had seen coming out of this work group, you know, concentration of poverty grants, these are grants that go to schools, individual schools with high concentrations of poverty. That's been a focus Mm -hmm. of the Kerwin Commission. And And we think it's a big part of, of addressing Maryland's Uh, equity gap. And, you know, we have an adequacy problem. We have an achievement gap in in schools like this. We know that's one of the places that we haven't found success, even with extra funds through Thornton. So this group is saying, let's target money towards this kind of school. Mm -hmm. But we saw them call the shot that this was going to change this week because last week when they unveiled it, the cost share for the local jurisdiction that has so many poor kids was part of was potentially overwhelming to those locals. Right. So we saw really high numbers in Baltimore City, I think, which is you're referring mm-hmm. to, and also in Prince George's County. Right. And we were wondering last week sort of how that would change. And now we have an answer, Michael. So what did they decide at this last meeting how to address those giant numbers for those jurisdictions? Well, there were there were two obvious paths that seemed out there. One would be for the state to just say this entire program is going to be state funded. Right. Let's wipe right. out the local contributions completely. And then as, as they got to talking about that last week, there were a couple commission members that said, well, maybe you should only do that for a set of the poorer or even the poorest jurisdictions who were the most in need of help. So maybe just the counties who get the disparity grant or they're, they get a benefit from uh, the guaranteed tax base education right. program. Right. But that's like sort of the poorest third or so of Maryland's counties. Sure. Um, they kind of split the difference. And in this week, really didn't have a debate. They just moved quickly to adopt a change which was somewhere in the middle. Um, It ends up being the state absorbs the cost for about two-thirds of the counties. It ends up being six counties left. Only, I mean, you would nominally say the most wealthy jurisdictions are the ones left paying their share of this program. The bulk, you know, you know, 18 out of 24, I guess three-fourths of the jurisdictions end up having this being a state only funded program. Okay, so that's how they sort of address those giant numbers there. And it's sort of like the wealth formula, right? If you're more wealthy, we're not going to kick in the state funding. But for the counties that are, you know, poorer, so to speak, that's where the state funding is going to kick in for this concentration of poverty. So that's that's a, a substantial click down in the county obligation. Um, and you know, we saw in the newspapers over the course of the last week, a, a lot of discussion on Baltimore City and Prince George's County, and what would the taxpayers there or the local budget there be obliged to come up with? So that conversation looming in the background of this whole decision meeting this week, uh, but a lot of attention in particular. And Baltimore City was directly and indirectly really heavily represented on this funding formula work group. So no surprise that there were questions in particular about Baltimore City and some of the policy discussions 
I think, ended up being focused on the city as well. So when these numbers kick in, when the county obligation kicks in, what are we looking at in terms of these obligations? And let's, I guess, first start with Baltimore City, since we're talking about the city. Yeah, so so as as the staff basically handed out, I don't know, I lost count, seven, eight, nine different documents that were illustrating either different points or answering previous questions or showing policy options and so forth. They put together one big table, sort of trying to show in detail, county by county, what is FY22 and FY23? What do those two years look like as we roll out these funding requirements? And the number that jumped off the page, I think the most of all, was by FY22, you had $138 million of new funding obliged coming from Baltimore City, even after you've forgiven their side of the constant concentration of poverty program. Right. And obviously, I mean, Baltimore City, you know, they, their their local income tax is maxed out. Baltimore City is already in a completely different orbit than right. any other right. Maryland jurisdiction and the way they rely on the property tax. Uh, they have they have uh, effectively the broadest taxing authority of any local government in Maryland. But to be honest, there aren't very many unturned stones in Baltimore City. It's not like they've held off having a transfer tax. No, they use that. They have a hotel tax. They have the whole litany. Um, that's a high tax effort jurisdiction. And to come up with in the space of just a couple of years, I mean, the FY22 budget, you're cutting that in like 18 months. Right. It seems like it's <laughs> not, you're not going to be able to nip and tuck your way to right. $138 million. Right. Right. So, so as, a, as a practical matter, that number turns into, okay, what are we going to do here? We, we, I think what happens is the commission believes philosophically in this framework that they've embraced, mm-hmm. which is at some point we want every jurisdiction to be doing its share of this whole program. The state's going to do its well-equalized piece, and that leaves the other piece of the puzzle for the locals to fill in. We're going to abandon the old way of thinking, which is maintenance of effort and just keep doing what you're doing, and replace that with do your share. It'll be a lower share if you're lower wealth, but still do your share. Um, I mean, that's the guiding principle. And if the commission and the worker were both buying into that, they're kind of choking on the transition years. If year two is $138 million to Baltimore City, that felt like too much. In terms of the phase-in, Michael, that number jumps off the page. What are we looking at in terms of a potential phase-in here to, to, to lessen that load yeah, a bit? So, so after, after some stretch of conversation, uh, what, what came out of the work group was an unspecified phase in of the whole county obligation. Right. So it sounds to me like they leave the number of years as X to be determined, maybe by the full commission, maybe even later than that, ultimately really to be determined in legislation. As everything will be right. ultimately. Right. right. But but in theory, for the moment, there's no, there's no specificity, but the idea of rather than the local government has to come up with its share of the new program, period, at when whatever the pace is of these things being rolled out by the state, do your share right along with the state. That's how you get Baltimore City on the hook for 138 by year two. Mm-hmm. Instead, you might 
might say through the first five years of this whole phase in, we'll just require the county to do 20% of that new obligation, then 40, then 60, then 80, then 100%. So just so, a ramp up. Yeah. So it would, you would be, you would have sort of a soft takeoff of these new obligations, but you'd still be getting to the same endpoint that the FY30 numbers where I think it's clearest to focus, those numbers are really unchanged. Whether it's a four-year phase in, a five, a six, an eight, it doesn't really matter. By the end of the whole thing, the numbers are what they are. And, you know, we will talk about that because that's really the bottom line takeaway. Right. We'll talk about that on the back half. And that's super important. I think that's what most folks are going to take away here. But Michael, there were a few other odds and ends, some technical items. And again, there was a lot more to this meeting. We have full coverage on the blog. But let's talk about some of the odds and ends that were important that came out of that final meeting of the funding formula work. Yeah, well, this is a little bit technical, but it's something that MAKO and local governments have talked about all the time. Um, there are county by county, all sorts of vagaries in the way the county does its budget. This includes Baltimore City, but it's in play to some degree or another in just about every jurisdiction. You might have some place that says, well, we're, we want to have school resource officers to provide safety on school sites, mm -hmm. but rather than put the money in the school budget and pay that person through the Board of Education, we're just going to have that be a deputy sheriff who's assigned to spend time at these two schools. School nurses, too, school right? Nurses same, same might be thing. funded through the county health department as opposed to the Board of Education budget. Right. Um, there's nothing really wrong with funding a nurse in the school budget or in the Department of Health budget. It's just, you know, different, right. basically, right? Right. right. But th there are some jurisdictions who would say, well, you know, you're kind of, I'm being criticized for not funding my schools a lot, but I'm, I'm supporting those schools with all those dollars that are going to nurses in the health department. So if you want to know what my commitment to education is, you should think of those dollars too. So this work group said, you know what, there's some logic to that. So as jurisdictions are being asked to come up with X dollars, let's make sure we're including the, the full definition of that local commitment. And if that means we're funding some crossing guards here and nurses there and SROs here or there, then that number should count toward that local obligation. Now, that didn't turn into a sheet of paper with a new column of numbers that says here's the revised total, but it makes all of these figures maybe softer targets and that's probably going to vary jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but that might mean some of these numbers are a little easier to reach, depending on how you do your budget. And that's, you know, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing in terms of MAKO's been advocating that. Counties have been saying this for many years. You know, we have costs that go to education that aren't necessarily reflected in the education budget, and we really should be considering those things. So that's a pretty significant development as far as I'm concerned. I, I think it is philosophically to have that appear in the state law someplace makes some sense. Uh, what it will do, I mean, it's going to take some time to sort out, like, how broad is this list and how many things get included? And to what degree does that make a trifling difference right, in these numbers? Right, right. Or is it a consequential difference in these numbers? Nobody left that meeting knowing how much they affected the bottom line by doing this. Another technical item, Michael, let's talk about the escalator and let's talk about how we calculate enrollment. Yeah, yeah both of these, I mean, technical is the right term. Both of these are under the 
fatherhood, uh, on enrollment, the question of how to count kids. We knew that they were going to say, if you're in a declining enrollment circumstance, we're going to do your state funding based on the greater of this year's enrollment or your three-year rolling average. Basically, we'll soften the, the decline if, you're, if your enrollment numbers are going down. Right. There was this lingering question, do we use that same greater of calculation everywhere? This week, they decided, yes, we'll use it everywhere. So when you, we calculate the, the local obligation and so forth, we'll still use that too. Okay, okay that, that's fine. Um, the other thing, this sounds technical, um, it, 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 on its surface, it might sound appealing to some counties, but I don't think it's much of a big deal. Uh, under the current law, we have maintenance of effort, and then we have an accompanying rider called an escalator. If you're calculated as having lower effort than the state average, you've got to bump up your funding, not just maintain, but bump it up by a calculated number. What they're basically saying is we are we are getting rid of the idea of maintenance of effort as the primary driver of school funding we're going to replace it with this mandated local share of the state program. And with that philosophy, the honest thing to do is let's get rid of the escalator. It was sort of a temporary patch to bring up some low effort jurisdictions. But if you're a low effort jurisdiction, your real requirement now is going to be whatever this phased in obligation to do your share of the whole state program. So that's why you say, you know, yeah. it's probably not a huge difference on the bottom line. Right. So if you're a jurisdiction that that's under the escalator now, you're almost certainly going to be one of the jurisdictions that's going to be asked to do more than you have been to meet your share of the state program. So it's going to amount to probably more or less the same thing. The escalator really wasn't going to be material for you. As they're discussing all of these items and, and all of these recommendations, Harford County Executive Barry Glassman, he's also the 2019 president of MAKO. He has all along been asking for, look, I really need to see the county by county numbers because I really want the counties to understand how these recommendations will affect them. So he asked Michael at some point for sort of a, a comparison, a side by side to make things easier to understand. Is that right? And, and what happened there? So he, he he asks the staff of the of the work group, he asks them, you know, I'd like to be able to see these funding obligations sort of by county and compared to what we're producing projected to be doing right. so I can sort of see that and see it as a percent and so forth. They hadn't provided that. So the, the staff you know, within the space of, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half had generated that table. And then suddenly the conversation in the room focuses like laser sharp on that piece of paper because it's by far as you would expect it's the easiest thing for everybody in the room to understand that than trying to synthesize these different components and looking at different tables for this is 22 and this is 23 but this is 2030 but it's expressed in current dollars and it was it, the things were a little confusing I think he was right saying that's the thing that's going to bring this into focus. So they shared their analysis that said, if counties keep funding like they have been funding, and here's our estimate of what the county obligation is going to be at the end of the line, let's look at fiscal 30 and the difference between where you would be and where you have to be under this bill is 1.2 billion or 1227 or something like that. And that's a number right. that we've seen in all the papers. So that makes, right? that, that makes the headlines. People are saying the state does two point eight the counties do 1.2 it's a four billion dollar program that's that's the plan big numbers they're not 
shocking. We had calculated the same number to basically be one three five from a week ago. We knew it was going to get shaved down a little bit because of the concentration of poverty and maybe right, right. maybe another piece. Um, there's sort of an asterisk sitting on that because of the the in kind matches of money being counted that's not being counted today, but. Ultimately, the $1.2 billion numbers is something that a reporter can circle and put in her headline and say, here's what you really need to know about the, about the Kerwin plan. It's $4 billion. Here's how it breaks out. And then you've got a number jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Right. So when we come back, Michael, we're going to talk about does that $1.227 billion number really tell the full story or are there some other costs in here that no one has really calculated yet? We'll also talk about County Executive Glassman abstaining from the vote. We'll explain that and we'll get into some listener Q&A. All that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we went through the final meeting of this formula funding work group. We explained how they sort of came up with their final recommendations, what went on, some of the technical items. Now let's get into what we've been teasing throughout this episode, this $1.227 billion number, which is calculated to be the county cost once you get through the 10-year phase in here. Right. And Michael, we have been analyzing these numbers and you've put a piece on the blog and I sort of want to walk through that and how you came to your conclusion here in your analysis. So I guess I would put it this way. I think there are two arguably valid ways to look at what is the local cost of this program. And the, the presentation before the commission is one valid way to look at it, but... If you follow the convention of the way that Annapolis always does its fiscal notes and estimates on what the cost of legislation would be and so forth, you really would look at it a different way. And to date, that's been absent from this discussion. I think it at least should be understood. Right. So our fiscal note process, DLS, award-winning fiscal note process, they base everything off of current law when they're calculating the impact of legislation on current costs and future costs. They're just basing it on here's the current law. If we did this, these are what the cost would be down the line. Right. So that's that's generally the case. And you know, the more convoluted the issue, uh, the more likely there are to be exceptions and, and different calculations and so forth. But that's pretty standard. I mean, you work in fiscal issues and you're testifying on lots of bills that deal with tax issues and so forth. And that's exactly how you do a fiscal note on a tax bill. Right. You say current law says it's taxed at this percent. Now you're proposing to tax it at this percent. Let's take the delta between those two, run the numbers. Here's the effect. Right. So 
let's look at the way the local effect, how do you get to 1.2 billion? And we sort of break this down piece by piece on the blog. And I don't want to do that in excruciating detail here, but I'll tell you the mindset. Mm -hmm. The, The mindset is the staff to this work group said, let's try and guess what the counties would be doing if we didn't pass a bill like this. Where would they be in FY30? Well, how would you make a good faith guess as to what county school funding would look like? You know there's a maintenance of effort law, but past tells us that many counties in most years are willing to go above and beyond maintenance of effort. And we've seen that, especially yeah. coming out of the recession, more and more counties sure. are going above maintenance of effort. Sure. So so maintenance of effort is a floor, but it's not a ceiling. And jurisdictions have frequently exceeded maintenance of effort, and they are willing to set the bar higher on their future budgets. That right, happens, because that's what happens. happens all the time, right? right? So what what I think the DLS staff assembled was let's take a look at recent year's trends for each county and we'll look at what your county's been willing to do over the last several years. We'll take that growth and we'll project it out for the next decade. So the numbers that we've got there, and it's this is this column of numbers that shows like $8.05 billion in spending. This is a forecast by the, the legislative staff who have been advising this work group, that's their guess as to where the counties would be without this bill requiring them to do anything. Okay. And what that really builds in is counties who have, have been willing to raise taxes for education. And we saw a wave of those just this last year, but even more, if you incorporate the last several years, which they have, mm-hmm. you basically are saying the counties who raised taxes for education recently They'll do that again over the next several years. Sometime, you know, the next decade's going to look like the last several years. So they won't just put in, like, you know, say, what they've put in above and beyond maintenance of effort. Right. They won't just continue doing that. Right. They're going to do that again Another bump and again. again and again. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's what's embedded. That's how you get to a little over $8 billion by FY30, counties going above and beyond like they have in the past. So understand there's no mandate that a county like Baltimore County raise taxes to fund education in FY20 that happened this past spring. Right. That wasn't mandated by state law. That was a practical and political decision by the by the local government. Right, right. right. Okay, so basically the way you get to $1.2 billion is by saying the full cost of the Kerwin program apportioned out to the counties would require the counties to a billion to more than that trend line. It's not more than they're mandated to do. It's more than the guess as to where they would be going if we just projected their recent trends out. So Baltimore County does another tax hike. Anne Arundel does another tax hike. The places that have formulas and they do 3 or 4% most years, they would continue to do 3 or 4% even though the state law doesn't make them do it. You start there. And then you add on a billion two. Now, of course, the problem is you just <laughs> mentioned there are some counties that have recently raised taxes in order to go above and beyond. And while they have gone above and beyond and that's their new maintenance of effort number, <laughs> how do you go back again and assume that you're going to keep raising taxes and raising taxes so that you can continue to make that bump right. year after year? Right. And, and then the single most obvious way to look at that is Baltimore County, who just went to the maximum on the income tax. So part of what they did to fund schools in 2020, you know, just this past spring, was they went to the state legislated maximum income tax rate. So they can't duplicate the tax hike from 2019, even if they wanted to do that two or three or seven years down the road, they can't do it. Right. So anyway, um, 
I don't think there's any in, anything intellectually dishonest about this approach, but it's important for workgroup members and it's important for stakeholders like county people and like the audience and like the reporters to understand that this is not really the fiscal note on the bill. This is saying, take the current trend and we'll ask a billion two on top of that. Okay. And when you do that, okay, here are the numbers, these projections of what counties would be doing if they kept making these bumps. If you add what those costs are on top of this $1.227 billion number, what is the ultimate cost that you come up with? This is, understand, um, the what I would say, the other valid way to look at this is what is the new mandated funding compared to current laws mandated funding? So if this bill fails, what do counties have to do between now and 2030? And again, that's what we're right. used to looking at with fiscal right. So current law says maintenance of effort, keep funding dollars per student. For about half the counties, there's that escalator clause. Your jurisdiction, you got to do like an extra percent and a half because you've got some economic growth. So your school funding should keep pace with that. That's current law. And if you just like spun that like a top and let it go for 10 years, that's what we project on our latest analysis on the Conduit Street blog. We don't see the state mandating funding to get to 8 billion. It really is just funding um, that gets up to like 7.1 billion. Right. So when you back out those numbers and you use that as the as the baseline, if you say the f- mandated funding under this program, same dollar amount as before, mm-hmm. but compared to what's mandated under current law, the difference between those two is really a billion nine, not a billion two, but a billion nine. And like, so first of all, in the aggregate, that matters. It's a larger number. And I think I think that's a more apples to apples reflection of what the bill does compared to current law. So it's about seven hundred million dollars more. Right. So okay. that's that's I mean, that's not chump change. It's significant annual money. funding, right? right? But another thing here is we've mentioned Baltimore County already. So like let's look at the the ask for Baltimore County. Um, Baltimore County has raised taxes. They've maxed out their income tax. I don't know what wherewithal there might be locally for Baltimore County, but like embedded in that assumption is that they would do it again, find another big $70 million tax hike in the next decade. And then on top of that, they're, they're being shown, you got to come up with, I'm looking at the numbers, 88 million. Right. Okay. So if you're from Baltimore County and you're coming up with the ask here is 88 million, I think the other way of looking at it is, this bill, if you just put it in neutral in Baltimore County and fund maintenance of effort, do what the state requires you to do. Current law. This bill requires you to go 185 above that. So that's a jurisdiction. Like in my mind, that's a clearer depiction of what the difference of 2030 looks like at the end of the line based on current law versus based on, you know, based on the Kerwin plan. Right. It's a, it's a big ask. Now the county could voluntarily go above maintenance of effort and set its bar higher, but that would be a local decision, not a state mandate. And as the county guys, that matters. And of it's, course, it's a difference if it's a local decision to make that local commitment as opposed to the state saying you must do this. Those are different things. Absolutely, they are. And and of course, you know, we these local decisions are based on a number of factors, constituents, the, the economy, 
So, so I mean, these projections, like you said, I don't think there's anything nefarious with looking at it this way. But this is, you know, if everything goes perfectly well, the economy stays in, in generally good health, and you have the wherewithal, you have the support to continue to make these these bumps to education. But as you just mentioned, for Baltimore County, when you're looking at the numbers, you know, on the sheets, it's, you know, 85 million, whatever it is. But what you just said is about 100 million more. So that is certainly significant. Right. And we see that in other counties as well. I mean, look at you know, like Barry Glassman right. from Harford right. County. That's a county that has done above and beyond pretty pretty regularly they've gone above maintenance of effort so they're a county with a big difference here um if on on the version that the work group got the ask for harford county is 9.2 9 million bucks so 10 years from now find 9 million more that on a certain level that sounds like well no big deal but what they're really asking is find 60 more on top of your state requirement so that means you're committed to do good times or bad, keep pumping up the number each year, um, even if your indicators aren't as strong as they may have been for the last few years that that trend line was built on. So obviously a, a big number there, a big number in Baltimore County, and, and really we see this across the board, but I think there are four counties. We, we've said right. this last week that maybe they, they, they won't be projected to have to do very much because they're already so far above and beyond what these numbers would be, even if you made them pay for the extra right. costs, like, you know, the add-on formulas, which we've talked about. So let's talk about that too, because there, yeah. this really is a mixed bag. Right. I mean, but that's, it's a, it's a necessary outcome of this change in philosophy. So if the state wants to adopt a philosophy that says what we ask of the county is do your share of the program that we calculate. If you're Charles County and you're already there, and after 10 years of maintenance of effort, you would still be already there, the state should say you're fine. There shouldn't be an ask over these, this next decade. Um, philosophically, I think that's, that's intellectually honest. Right. Now, is it politically wonderful? Is that, is that going to sit well with some jurisdictions that are being asked to raise taxes and cut budgets to find this money? Um, you know, Anne Arundel County has a, has an ask of 200 million and Charles County right next door has a zero. Um, is that politically difficult for Democratic legislators from those two jurisdictions to look each other in the eye in such a different place on this bill? I think it probably is. Sure. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of the contours of this issue. Uh, we also know that the ask on those two big jurisdictions that are relatively poor, majority minority districts, Baltimore City and Prince George's, a couple of the places that this program is trying to target for, you know, for big gains, uh, there's a big ask on those jurisdictions. In in the DLS calculations for Baltimore City, it's 329 million. By our calculation compared to maintenance of effort, it's not much different. It's three 335. But in Prince George's County, the DLS number is 360 million. If you put that compared to maintenance of effort, it's $476 million per year in local funds from Prince George's. There's only so many school nurses and, and, you know, school resource officers and so forth that you can find as in-kind contributions to bring that number down. That's a big number. And again, that's after the concentration of poverty is switched to a state. Right, already, already, yeah, that's already been absorbed by the state. So this is after all those changes, uh, Whichever number that is, 360 or 476, whichever whichever one you want to look at, right. that's a right. big lift for that jurisdiction. We should right. say, too, this analysis, and again, read it on the blog, but you didn't just – 
guesstimate enrollment figures, right? You use right. Maryland we, Department of Planning we, we numbers. We took the, the best numbers we could get. So right. we looked at the actual effect of the escalator so far. And you know, basically, if everybody's just doing the minimum, then more or less, you know, we would imagine that that's, that scatter would be more or less the same. So we looked at the last four years and just projected that out. Same thing with enrollment. We looked at the Department of Planning. They've got a 10-year projection. It's not a perfect overlap, but it is a 10-year phase. And most jurisdictions are, you know, the, their demographic changes are relative stable over the next decade. So, I mean, as, as a practical matter, there's not a whole lot of controversial data underneath this. We're just doing the math and saying there's two ways to slice this. I don't think there's, I don't think anybody's lying when they tell you this asks a billion two more than the kind of funding you've been doing. But I think it's also fair to say it's a billion nine more than what the state is forcing you to do. All right. So that's the bottom line. The The number that is circulating is 1.2 billion. And Michael, we think the actual fiscal note is about 1.9 billion. I think as a fiscal note, that's the number you would write. Okay. So that's the the big takeaway, I think, here. And Michael, I do want to get into another item here. So so County Executive Glassman, you know, he's not technically the representative of MAKO on this formula funding work group. He wears a lot of hats, yeah, right? Right. right. Yeah. But but I mean I mean I think even you know, as he talked about this, he said, I can't completely step out of my role as the president of MAKO, and it would be silly to ignore that as one of the reasons why I'm at this table. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. right. And so the other big news was there were two Two abstentions from this vote. County Executive Glassman was one of the two that abstained from this vote. And Michael, he provided a letter to the work group. Let's talk about why he abstained. He, he really was trying to understand the effect on every single county because he felt like that's his duty. Right. And, and, and the short version is there's only so much you can do on that front, right? Um, we only got the first set of numbers on any of this stuff seven days before. So this is the 15th of October. They're having decision day. The first draft of all this stuff got released on October 8th. Right. So at maximum, he had seven days. That was a holiday weekend with a lot of people tough to reach. I know he scrambled over the course of that week to reach out to colleagues in in county government from across the state. He absolutely the, did. The jurisdictions who were unaffected and heavily affected and trying to get their points of view. And you know, he came away saying, you know, I can do my best to try and you know, carry what what I hear from Wicomico County, who's being asked to do a ton more, right. but also from the Calvert counties who are worried about, is this estimate secure and so forth? So he basically came away saying, I don't think I can just say the counties say yes, the counties say no. It's not as simple as that. And I can't cast one vote to try and represent that constituency. Uh, he also, in his letter, which we've we've posted in its entirety on the Mako blog, in his letter he points out something we've been talking about here as, as well, that there's some uncertainty in some of these projections, and almost all the uncertainty puts the risk on the the program costs more than it's than we have as our official estimate. Right. So if we don't bring down the caseloads in special education as dramatically as the commission hopes and wants to. And that's a big number. Right. right? It's if, a big if, number. And if, if, if it turns out there are more employee costs 
than just the teacher raises envisioned as the basis of, of, of this program. If there are more ripple effect costs, then that's going to be an extra cost at the very least in the school budget. If the state has washed its hands and said, we've already done our share, then that means that's a local cost. Uh, so a combination of a short time to get county input and some lingering uncertainty about whether the numbers are the real numbers left him saying, I can't make a final vote, but counties are staying in this. Right. And he he also said, look, we hope to be, we will be at the table as this moves forward. We're going to be there. We're going to be working with you to come up with how this is going to work, how this is going to roll out. So he made it very clear. Look, we're not walking away. We're going to be at the table. So so counties have two representatives. These are technically MACO representatives on the full Kerwin Commission that meets till the end of the year. We know the legislature is going to take this up as a bill or as a set of bills and MACO and county leaders will be involved in that process. So it's not like we're just washing our hands of the whole thing. He just wasn't able to say, like, I can't support this right now. And I mean, one of the things I thought that was right, he's saying, listen, I'm I'm one county and I personally am term limited out after three years. The easiest thing for me to do is say, hey, for Harford County for the next three years, not a big problem. Sounds fine to me. Go for it. Right. But he wanted to try and say, hey, you know, you brought me here to represent the counties. I'll do my best, but I can't give you one yes or one no on that. Okay, so I think that was important to put into context because if you just read that and you don't really understand the reasoning behind it, you know, you can make other assumptions. And I mean, some people are going to be disappointed. Secretary Brinkley made some similar comments, not quite as elaborate, but he also abstained and said, I'm a member of the of the full commission, so I'll, I'll be at the table too. Right. So, so I mean, it doesn't upend if you wanted this to move forward and you want it to be a so-called unanimous vote, you still got it. But it ended up being, you know, with two people abstaining from the final vote. So it goes. So, Michael, let's get into some listener Q&A. And of course, this this has to do with the Kerwin Commission, the recommendations. Longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, Frances Bowman. We got some questions from her, and let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, I want to get into one of them because it illustrates, actually, it's a perfect expansion of one of County Executive Glassman's issues, and it's on uncertainty in the projections. So she's thinking practically, and God love her. So she's thinking about, you know, in my jurisdiction, I keep hearing we have have teacher shortages already. That we can't find teachers. So and one of the tenets of the Kerwin program is obviously we're going to give teachers more time out of the classroom and therefore we're going to have to hire a lot more teachers. We're going to have the expectation of being a teacher and to get your certification and, and advance through the, you know, through through the ranks as a teacher and to continue to get promoted. Um, there's going to be higher standards. Right. So her question is basically, what if we, you know, what if we give them the raise that the plan pays for and nobody shows up? Right. What if we give them the raise <laughs> and then they're spending more time outside the classroom? And then when we go to hire more teachers that are going to be needed, what if nobody shows up and we're right. not able to do that? Right. Or the people are not qualified right. and so forth. Like, I mean, you don't want to hire substandard teachers and say we're checking a box. So, so she raises a great issue. And I think the best answer to that is we don't know. Right. If, if, if you're, 
you're a jurisdiction where you know the money that's envisioned as the teacher raises as part of this plan, if that's not adequate to bring in a new wave of qualified teachers who have these credentials and have done the studying and so forth to get there, then you probably have to throw some more money at the position. You re you refile the position, but you say, all right, you know, we couldn't get you for for sixty thousand. Let's try it at sixty eight. Right, but nobody should be thinking that the state is going to show right. up. With State's extra done. Money, right? right, the state. They has its formula. In. The state has its formula already. They are done with their contribution. So that becomes a new cost that would be supported locally and is not on any of these sheets of paper. But if in practice, the state is saying you must have this many teachers and they must have these credentials. Right. We're we're giving you our Here's share of sixty grand for that right. teacher, but it really costs you sixty eight. Then the extra costs are all local costs, and they're not here; they're on top of here. And you're right; that's a perfect example of what County Executive Glassman was saying. You know, there are a lot of uncertainties in play here, and this is one of them. So, to me, that's a pretty good illustration. Um, another thing that we have heard back from, both in person and from from listeners of the podcast, we mentioned this last week. I think it was last week or maybe the week before, but in in talking about the Kerwin plan, we mentioned class size. Class size is maybe the simplest metric that people think of for quality of education, right? I look at a school and I find out the teacher to student ratio is, you know, one to 12 versus one to 18 versus one to 25. And that gives me some idea of the commitment in the classroom, right? I I mean, that's a number everybody thinks of. Sure. And you, when, when you go to back to school night in October and you sit in those tiny little desks, everybody does the same thing. You look around and you're like, Oh, Johnny's in a class with five by five, 25 students. Okay. That seems like it could be okay. But if it's 35 students, you have a different feeling, right? Everybody intuitively pays attention to class size. So you dug up your, you're like going through your dog-eared copy of the old report from the commission. And they've got language saying, we think that slightly larger class sizes is the way to go. Right. And that's all based off of high performing systems in other countries. We know that they spend a lot of time looking at other countries and how they do things and, and, you know, they perform very well. So in other countries, actually, there are higher class sizes when you, when you compare them to the United States. But again, that metric Everybody, at least here, looks at that and says, I want the 1 to 12, not the 1 to 30. Right. So I I think our takeaway is not that Kerwin is going to mandate larger class sizes, and that's going to be written in the legislation and required of systems, but – you do the math here. Um, if a central tenet of this program is that teachers should spend a smaller share of their hours in the classroom. Right. So instead of, you know, the thumbnail, instead of 80% of the hours, it should be 60% of the hours, more time for peer interaction and for mentoring and for collegial exchange Professional and so forth. development. Right. Like right. this long list of things that's going to make them better teachers. And that's one of the outcomes we want. Okay. So you've got to hire more teachers, but all we've been talking about is hiring enough teachers to more or less get us back where we were. So, I mean, in my mind, that's about a third more teachers. I'm not sure that math has carried all the way through every one of these calculations, but as a practical matter, uh, no one's talking about having 50% more teachers so that class sizes 
go down. Nowhere are you going to find that one of the deliverables of the Kerwin plan is smaller class sizes. They might be neutral. They might go up a shade, but no one is talking about bringing down class sizes. And I've heard other people sort of almost say, well, I'm assuming you got that wrong. When you were talking about class sizes, you must mean that Kerwin's bringing them down. And our takeaway is that is not on the agenda. No, it's not. And and I think that's important because if you start to get backlash from communities and say, no, 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 we want to lower class sizes, then that would mean, Michael, as you just said, you'd have to hire more teachers. And so the the price goes up, the cost goes up. So again, I think this is a great illustration of sort of the unknown. And again, shout out to Francis for that great question. You're thinking in the right way, I think, in terms of what happens if X happens, what do we do? Well, again, it's probably going to be on the county to, to fill in that hole where, where you need extra money. It's not going to be the state showing up with a big bag of money. And that's generally the nature of how school funding works because the state's contribution is by a formula. And so they don't actually do a school budget. They make a contribution and figure the budget solves itself down the food chain. And it does. It does so in the county council or before the county commissioners as they do the county budget. And they say, this is the contribution we're able to make. We're, you know, frequently they say we'll do more than we have to, but here's X school boards asking for this much. We can give them this piece of that. That's how it, that's how the budget actually comes together and like the ability to actually hire that teacher, that decision's not being made up on Baltimore Street. <laughs> it's right. being made down in Princess Anne. Right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. So, Michael, we've gone through all of this. We have, we've come out with what we think these actual costs are. We're going to publish everything. And then you're going to leave me here. Yeah, I'm right? out of town. You're I'm gone. gone. I'm gone. Yeah, where are you going? I mean, you're, you're, it's I'm, a big deal. I'm charting my path. So this time next week, you and Natasha and our other colleagues, you all can do the podcast. I'm fixing to be like... Halfway to Guam by and next I, and week. I, halfway to Guam. And I'm hoping that we can get you to, to call in and that you can have a view of Guam and you can relate to right. us. It's right. so beautiful and it's everything we thought it was. And, and, and that's that's my hope. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So we'll leave it there for now. Again, all of the information that we discussed today you can find on the Conduit Street blog. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. That way everything gets sent directly to you. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook. Join us on social media. But until next week, at least I'm signing off until then michael will be halfway to guam we'll see what happens until then kevin and michael signing off we will talk to you soon